Everyone dreams about living an uncommon life, but how we define that dream is very different for each of us. And for most, it's a lifelong pursuit. Welcome to the Uncommon Life Project Podcast. We're going to introduce you to people who are living that life or enjoying the journey to get there. We're going to also give you some tools, tricks, and tips for starting or accelerating your own efforts to live an uncommon life, a life worth celebrating and savoring. Please welcome your hosts, Brian Dewhurst and Philip Ramsey. Hello, everybody. My name is Philip Ramsey. And I'm Brian Dewhurst. And we are coming back at you with another podcast with the Uncommon Life Project. This time, it's another duo cast with yours truly and the one and only Brian Dewhurst. Welcome, Brian. Thank you very much. So what we thought we'd do today is another one of our sections of the seven sources of residual income. And I got to be honest with you guys, this one is going to get a little heady. So hang in there with us. I think there's a lot of information. We're going to try to make it as fun as we can. We're going to ham this up. Ham it up. This is uh, going to be the most exciting podcast we've ever done. <laughs> and here's the funny part. It's about investing. So this should be the, the place where we hang our hat on. And this is one that, I mean, in all fairness and all honesty, this is the one that we absolutely do. And I think we do it decent. As I think we do it okay. But this is the one that we're not the For most sure. excited about because it doesn't seem like it really puts people in control or it might give them cash flow for the monthly, but they're not learning anything while doing it. And so this is probably the one that is maybe the easiest one for people to jump into for the seven sources of residual income. It's just one that Brian and I just feel like it's part of the puzzle. It's not the one that gets us. It's a puzzle piece. It's a puzzle piece. Well, and I think, you know, when you look at our podcast, Philip, I think we both have enjoyed the interviews and just the stories that come. And we haven't had one person, have we have had one nope. person that's like, oh, I made a million dollars in the stock market, you that's know, it was, and not to say you can't because obviously the people in Wall Street do, but I think when you look at the main street, like this is the long-term play, right? Like you're putting money in for the long-term, it's growing, you know. And I think too, when you look at the stock market in terms of telling a story, I was always attracted. I grew up in a brokerage firm, um, you know, working, uh, well, not working, but I grew up in one just because my mom was in it. And then I did end up working for her through college. But the thing that I've always been drawn to by the stock market is the stories, right? Is the story of a business entrepreneur. He takes his company public. He has a big vision and the stock goes nuts, right? Like, I think we can all relate to that. Totally. And so I think with some of it though, and some of the things we'll get into today, those stories get lost in the minutia of all this information. And, um, and I think ultimately that's what's drawn people to the stock market is the American dream mm. and hitting it big. And, um, you know, yeah, let's so. dive into that a little bit because it, it always hasn't been this popular. Uh, there used to be back in the day, they had pension plans. And, mm -hmm. and things like that, that actually would help people in their cash flow after they retired. And then when was that transition to the pensions weren't there as much and the employees decided they were going to roll out a, like a 401k plan and, and mm -hmm. get it, you know, do a uh, employee match and all this stuff. And so we're going to kind of talk through that. <laughs> I but got when, an employee match. Yeah. So we're going to talk through that stuff. We're going to get into the weeds a little bit. Um, hopefully. We'll just, I think let's. Let's keep riffing on that real quick. Cause I think it's important yeah. and yeah, come on. You know, I think the, so I don't know if everybody's seen this movie. If you haven't, it's actually pretty good, but uh, 
the infamous Gordon Gecko, uh, Wall Street, which Charlie Sheen, uh, before he went crazy. No offense, Charlie, but <laughs> you're getting a little weird, bro. I mean, he might be um, listening now. He might be, Brian. He so. might be. Um, but anyways. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, like you said, most companies had a pension plan or a defined uh, benefit plan, as they were called. And it required the companies to carry a tremendous amount of cash and investments on their balance sheet. And then the reserves that were required for the company to maintain to protect those plans was very, um, it was very expensive to them on their balance sheet. Uh, and it would take a lot of profits. And so in the 70s, as Wall Street grew, uh, some people, and that's the Gordon Gecko plays, is basically a corporate raider. And what he would do is, and what they figured out was, hey, we can go in and buy this company with this huge pension plan and all these assets. And then we're going to strip out that pension plan and basically stop it and cash people out of it and take it off the balance sheet as a future liability. And then the company is instantly more profitable. Mm-hmm. And so they started doing that in a rapid pace and firing people and letting people go and stripping out all these benefits. And then there was a huge backlash to this. Like, Hey, I'm, re- I'm, banking on that thing. That's part of my compensation as an employee. Absolutely. And so then Wall Street and the government got together and created the ERISA Act, which was really the replacement of the pension plan. And so now we have the defined contribution plan, which puts more of the impetus on the employee instead of the employer. And it's very, you know, it's not impactful really to the balance sheet of these companies. So that's really what started this whole retirement plan business. And then, you know, financial institutions, and uh, I'll make this last point here and we can no, go somewhere good. else. But good, man. Institutions, banks, insurance companies, they want your money as long as possible. They want as much of it as they can get. They want it systematically and they want to hold it for a long period of time. And they want to give you back as little as possible. Hence the, <laughs> hence the retirement plan created, <laughs> creation. So, it, uh, it makes perfect sense how Wall Street wins, um, you know, in terms of traditional financial planning and putting your money in the market. Uh, but I don't know that it's been the smooth ride that, uh, that it's been perceived as uh, in, in Main Street America. That's a great point. You know, we, we talk about, um, I'm sure we've mentioned this in podcasts before, but we've talked about how we as advisors see younger individuals starting to be more entrepreneurial when we started or like right now we're seeing a lot of retirees and they kind of bought into that model, the 401k model. Oh, we're getting an employer match and they're coming out. And honestly, I would say 80% would say they thought they'd have more money than they thought that they would have. I think it's a hundred percent. Yeah. They all think that they should, they were thinking that this was going to at the end of the rainbow be more than, more profitable than they thought it was going to be. And so now we're seeing kind of like a reversion back to, I think my grandpa um, and our grandparents were more entrepreneurial and trying to get into businesses and trying to create businesses and do things on their own. Um, And I would say maybe that it it might've worked for some people, maybe not hundred percent, but it seems to me like the people who are retiring now thought they would be in a different place currently. And so when we see that, I mean, we have to, call a spade a spade. It seems like they wish they would have had more control of their time and money throughout the X number of years, 44 years, for example, my father. And so, 
mm-hmm. this is why we're kind of passionate about the seven sources of residual income, but this is one of those seven sources. So we're going to talk it's about a big it. one. It is. So, and you yeah, know what, this, is, this can be as big or as little, and this is always what we talk about for the seven sources. This can be as big of a part of your plan or as little as part of your plan um, as you see appropriate. So let's mm-hmm. go ahead and I want to talk about the qualified money versus the non-qualified money. And this is where it's going to get a little bit uh, heady, as we will say. So we'll try to keep it exciting. <laughs> we'll try not to lose you. <laughs> okay. I think to think of it very simply is like there's only two types of money. If you think about a coin, there's only two two sides of a coin. Um, there's actually a third with the ring, but uh, let's just say there's only two. So there's non-qualified versus qualified. Non-qualified is your now money. It's kind of how we talk about it. Or your bank money, your checking account money, your paycheck money. You go and buy a real estate investment. It's probably that type of money. Then your qualified money is the retirement plan money. It's the, uh, I got to put money away to get get out of some taxes or mm-hmm. my employer has a 401k and I need to do it to get the match. It's that money. Mm-hmm. So Roth, IRA, 403B, 457, all those different types of plans is your qualified money. Mm-hmm. And we think, you know, and why we're focused on the seven sources of residual income is because we think there's a lot more wealth opportunity with your now money or your non-qualified money because there's so many different things you can do with it. I think people forget, you know, if you get a rental property, you got somebody you've never met before paying you money every month. (laughs) Or if you start a business, you got employees that are working for you, you got multiple people that are generating money for you and and all the different various sources of residual income. But when you put money in a qualified plan, you can really only benefit in three ways. You putting money in, your employer putting money in and then, you know, the long-term appreciation in the stock market. That's really it. I mean, there's only real three, three ways to grow that account. And the third of that equation can go negative on you. It doesn't have to go go back. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So we think just the non-qualified and solving for the residual income to match or meet uh, or exceed your monthly income needs to survive. Like if you just focus on that, before you'd ever go into the qualified money, it makes way more sense. And we see all these young people, like, you know, 25, 18 to 25, 18 to 30, and they have already plowed, I mean, in some cases, almost $100,000 into retirement plans, and they have very little money in the bank, but then they want to get married, they want to buy a car, they want to buy a house, they want to buy a rental property, but their wealth is tied up. And, and conversely, I think the last point I'd make is we have a lot of people in their 50s and 60s that are like, I have too much money in these retirement yeah, plans. I want to do something else. Yeah. But they're at the top of their salary yep. and they've got to max these accounts out because they're getting crushed in income taxes. Yep. So if, if the young people would just solve for their non-qualified needs of how much money do you need and building that up through residual sources in their 20s and 30s, they could probably retire by 40. Yes. And then if you have excess money, then put it into the market in these qualified accounts because you do need the tax deduction Yep. and you have it. Yep. So yeah. now let's quickly talk about that. Cause you touched on something that I want to dive into like we always do. So here we are. Um, you said, so let's say this whole thing works. The qualified plan, when you've been putting your money in, your employer has been matching it. And now you have $2 million of your qualified plan. How many years do they actually have to dictate what they want to do with that money 
before the government starts telling them what to do. Yeah, 11. 11 years. So you accumulate for, let's just say 59 and a half, and then you have 11 years from 59 and a half to, what's the magic age? 70 and a half. 70 and a half. And then now the government is going to start requiring you to take a minimum distribution. Those are called RMDs. And they're going to start, because they haven't been taxed before, they're going to start pushing it over the ledge, as we call it, because they want to get their taxes out of that account. And so what you found is there's some of our clients who are like, what do we do now? Like, we don't want all this money and all this income, but we have to take it or else we're going to get taxed mm-hmm. at 50% over whatever you yeah, don't take. So, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's one of those things you only make it once. You only make that, <laughs> that thing wrong. You only well, that and it's m- interesting too. I think I thought the kind of the other place you could go with that point you were trying to make, Philip, is you know, let's say everything goes right in your 40 and your 401k is at two or $3 million. It's kind of like, so what? Like you can't touch yeah. it. Yeah. You know, and you can do a 72 uh, T distribution before you're 59 and a half, but the government ma- mandates that you take out uh, even an equal payments. And so the withdrawal rate ends up being like one to 2%. And so it's a very, you know, it's still probably a lot of money if you got two or three million dollars, but still it's it's not what you're thinking it's gonna be. Totally. And so so yeah, I think it's just to start putting money in those vehicles at uh, 18 to 25 when it's legitimately 40 years away, we don't see a lot of um like it, I just wouldn't start there personally to build wealth. Now, and this could be case by case and we need to probably sure. make the whole compliance thing. We're not tax advisors yeah. and we do work closely with each one of our clients with their tax guys to really talk through tax women yeah. should say that too, um, to talk through each situation. But as sure. a whole, it seems to be what you're saying is actually right. And so here's what I would say too, to help you kind of, formulate your own thoughts. There's three questions we normally ask people. And the first question is actually interesting because taxes just went down. But so the first question is, are taxes going up or down? And majority would say the taxes are probably going to be going up just because we've got a lot of debt. Okay. So that's normally, yes, taxes are going up. And then would you rather be taxed on the seed or on the harvest? And from Iowa, the seed. we, yeah, we understand that because, you know, you plant one seed and then out comes four ears of corn and you'd rather be taxed on the one than the many. And then the last question that we ask is, is a dollar worth more today than it is tomorrow? Or another way you can ask this is how many candy bars can you buy with $1 today? Not one, but how many, Half of one. how many candy bars could you buy when you were little? Probably around like two. two. Yeah. It was like so, two. You can so, get like a candy bar and a Slurpee, you know, at 7-Eleven. I love it. You know, I used to, okay, we digress, but we're trying to make this a little bit more entertaining. And then, so those We're trying to ham it up. Those questions would make you wonder, maybe the qualified accounts might not be what I thought they were, or the 401ks. We'll just say that because a lot of people will know that. So just sure. something to give you a little bit of an uncommon thought about the whole, I guess, norm of that. Um, I think the last story or analogy is it hits close to home for me. And if you walk into a bank and you ask them, if you give me a loan, give me a loan of $500,000. And the banker says, yep, we'll give you that loan, sign here. You should immediately say, well, what's the interest rate? And what if he looks at you and says, hey, don't worry about it. We'll tell you in 20 years. 
okay, would you take the loan? Like you wouldn't put your name on that thing. There's no way. Not at all. It'd be crazy. Yeah. But what do we do with these 401ks when we don't know what the tax treatment's going to be on the way out and what we we don't know what the growth rate's going to be. Yes. And so that's the things that like, man, you would never write your name on that line yet. We're, we're putting this stuff in every day or every month. Um, So it's just something to pause and consider, I would say. I think too, we'd caveat this with, and I think we talk about this, especially with, you know, our guest interviews, Philip is, and we're saying this in the context because a lot of our clients and a lot of our listeners, there's something on their heart that they want to pursue. There's a passion, there's a burning desire, there's a voice, whatever you want to call it, something is happening internally that you can't shut it off anymore. Mm -hmm. And you want to, you want to make a change and you want to pave a different path. And we've seen it time and time again, people go to make that path and a large portion of their wealth is tied up in these accounts and they don't know how to make it happen mm-hmm. because their largest asset is illiquid in these retirement plans. And um, the penalties to touch that money and those different things, it's just very difficult. And so what we're saying is, you know, if you're in that spot of discontentment or like, hey, there's something I really want to do, I wouldn't start throwing money into the stock market to fund that dream or vision. Preach it. You know, we've, we met one client that they really wanted to adopt. And so we're like, that's amazing. Like how much money do you have? And they're like, well, we have $200,000 in our 401k. Okay. Yeah. Great. <laughs> but doesn't help you. <laughs> yeah. And you can take a loan from that, but man, that's a sticky, that's a scary thing. Yeah. Um, and then we you were don't like, well, how much money to, to adopt? Yeah. Right. And then, yeah. And then the next question was, well, how much do you have in your bank? And then they kind of depleted said, well, $2,000. Like, okay. Like there's a huge disconnect here. You have $200,000. You would be considered wealthy yet. You can't do even what you, what God placed on your heart today. So that's just a thought. So, okay. We beat it up. That's kind of where we're at. We beat it up. Let's go the other way. Okay. I want to go in. I'm totally cherry picking our topic. So hang on. I want to talk about the four layers of fees on these things because that is huge when you're talking about investing. Yeah. So that's um, the four layers of fees are real. You've seen some of this in the media, uh, but we want to break it down um, for you. So the first layer I would say is like account maintenance fees or um, like record keeping fees Uh, because the federal government has so many restrictions on our industry and so many requirements Uh, to send out notifications, statements, all those different things, tax filings, Uh, especially on IRAs. um, A lot of the brokerage firms and different things will charge uh, like a $50 annual fee to have an IRA. Um, So I would lump those in as like a record keeping fee or maintenance fee, Mm -hmm. uh, if you will. So that's the first layer. The second layer of fees are trading fees. And so if you have your money with a third party money manager, there is expenses in trading. So if they're running a strategy and they're getting you in and out of stuff, uh, that th- that's going to require a trading expense. And so you need to know whether you're paying that uh, or the third-party money manager is paying that. So that's the second layer. Then you have the um, uh, asset management fee or the management expense of that money. And so 
that's the expense that's dictated for the person that's managing the account. Mm-hmm. And the FINRA is getting way more vocal on this and trying to separate this in our industry right now. So I think you're going to see this get a lot clearer. But uh, I think it's been ambiguous of like, how do we make money on this mm-hmm. stuff, right? And who, mm-hmm. How much am I really paying? And so uh, for us, we use a third-party money manager and they actually are managing the accounts on a daily basis and they, they get paid. And we can't, uh, if we use them, we, we've got to pay them, right? They're not going to work for free. And so that management fee to manage those accounts is, um, is their fee. So that's the third layer. And then the fourth layer is, Philip, is you and I. Yes, it is. <laughs> Ta-da. Ta-da. So there's a cost uh, to so doing business. As advisors, and, and this is part of the reason we've shifted and we're trying to shift more towards a subscription model uh, to reduce our, our fees uh, in this bucket because, I mean, it's four layers of fees is real. Yep. And I think people want to know, what am I getting for this? And so uh, that's a big part uh, of why we're doing a subscription model now. But um, so, yeah, it's the advisor. You're paying for the advisor, uh, too, to work with them. And they are potentially charging you a fee uh, as well. So those are the four uh, basic layers of fees. And if you're not using a third-party money manager, and let's say your money's at a mutual fund, uh, you're paying the mutual fund manager as opposed yeah. to the third-party money manager. So you're paying it really no matter where your money's at. Um, and, and then, or if you're doing it yourself, you're, you're pulling out that cost. Or if you're doing it with a robo-advisor, um, you know, and you're trying to go it on your own, then obviously you're reducing that cost. But you're still going to have the investment expense of what you're holding. So uh, if you own an ETF, you know, there's a fee uh, or a, an expense ratio, if you will, there's, it's actually probably the fifth layer of fees. Um, yeah. And, uh, so yeah, the ETF company is charging a fee on the pot of money. The, uh, mutual fund, uh, company is charging a fee in there. And so, um, yeah, it's just going to be super expensive. I think and you're not frust- going to get out of those fees if, even if you go with a robo advisor. Yeah. The, the frustrating part of, for me, is that there are always normally fees that's attached to some of these accounts. I mean, I would say there always is, is fees attached to these accounts. It's when they're, they're not displayed clearly that I get frustrated with. Because if they're not displayed clearly, it doesn't mean that you're not getting feed out. Charged. Right? Charged. It's you're not seeing it, right? And so that's what mm-hmm. I think FINRA is trying to do and trying to regulate more, um, which I think is right. And we're seeing that. In the 401k space too, they're trying to make it clear as to like, how much are are we really paying here? Uh So I think you're going to continue to see more clarity on that as the internet forces that and as the government forces that. And it's a good thing. So we will see fee compression. But the data suggests on average in around America, uh, the average person in a brokerage account with an advisor and, you know, mutual funds or whatever, you're paying about two to 3% annually in fees on your money. Yeah. Yeah. And when you think about that two or three percent and let's say your account went up let's say it's two percent fees and your account mm-hmm. went up four percent that's really a 33 percent of your gain that you just gave back because of fees that, yeah because you would have had six percent yes exactly yeah. and so i think that's hard to kind of wrap your head around but fees are real you need to be aware of them and you need to be with advisors i think that you need to have some clarity on what those are it's not like you're not going to yeah. get charged like I'm telling you, there is a fee associated to this business for Brian and I. And for that, we should be get compensated for it. Um, but we're definitely very clear of what that is for our clients. So, 
That's good. Okay. So man, there's so many angles and areas we could go. Um, let's talk about, you talked about ETFs uh, and mutual funds and individual stocks. Let's go there just for the listeners. Quick. Yeah. I like this one. So when I grew up in my mom's brokerage firm, uh, I started looking at stocks. I remember she gave me this booklet. This is, this is back in 1987, uh, the year of um, the flash, not the flash crash, but uh, it was a Black Monday in 87. And I had this thick booklet and it was a stock, it was like a stock booklet and it had wow. all the stocks and their prices and the ticks. That was back when they did the, the fractions, you know? Uh-huh. And so I was been looking at stocks since I was six years old. And then, you know, she was more in a Wall Street style firm where it was just stocks and bonds and brokers were on the phone selling stuff on the phone, kind of like you see in the movies. Mm -hmm. uh, but these guys were, you know, good guys were here in the Midwest. And so it was just, yeah, it was a good firm. And so I grew up around that. And I, that's kind of why I resonate with the, um, you know, the story, right, of a stock. Yeah. And why yeah. are we buying this? And, and I mean, it's all like, the storied companies. It's like ingrained in you. Like I've heard you yeah. talk about it. And it's just like you go into this <laughs> mode and it's, well, yeah. Brian's in stock mode. Just leave stock him, mode, let, yeah. Let go. <laughs> and I think I was like Jim Cramer Jr. in college because I worked at her firm. And, and I mean, I could quote probably 200 to 300 stocks and where they were at on any given day and what they were doing. And, and really, I've backed way away from that. And here's why. It's the Enron. It's the um, WorldCom. Mm -hmm. It's the ones that go wrong that mm -hmm. have really, I think, kind of maybe embittered me to all uh -huh. that. And I think for me too, I was a finance and economics major in, in college. And so I'm really big on trends, right? Like I think you can look at like AI, artificial intelligence. And I think semiconductors will do extremely well right now because everything is getting a chip in it, right? Like the internet of things. I mean, they're putting chips in coffee makers, toasters, refrigerators, yeah. everything has a chip. So those are trends. But then if you go in and buy the wrong semiconductor stock, you can go down 30 to 40% while the rest yeah. of the industry is up 30 to 40%. And that just, I don't have the time as much anymore, obviously with the success that we've had, you know, praise God and all that and everything that we're called to do on a daily basis. I just can't do the research that I used to do. And that's kind of why we've, we've hired a third party money manager for this sleeve of our business. But, um, so yeah, I think obviously you can make a lot more money in individual stocks and you've seen that in Apple or Disney or, um, you know, Amazon and those types of things, but you can also get it wrong. And so that's where I've just kind of got frustrated with having the right thesis, having the right trend, picking the right subsector of the industry, but then picking the wrong stock. Mm -hmm. And so that really dovetails to me into mutual funds too, because a mutual fund for the most part, uh, and again, now there's more mutual funds than there are stocks, if you want to think about that. So there's more people telling you you should own this stock than there are stocks to buy. So this is the, the old, like, you know, Peter Lynch in the eighties, you know, invest in what you know. And we got this explosion of mutual funds and you know, it's the guy sitting there thinking, I think Pepsi is going to do better than Coke. And I think Delta is going to do better than United. And I think uh, Clorox is going to do better than Colgate, that type of thing. And really what you ran into is that guy could have been a, um, great fund manager, mm -hmm. but nobody really ever tells you when he leaves, mm -hmm. you know, did that guy retire? Did that guy, you know, kind of go it, through a rough patch in his life and the performance suffered? You just don't know. Yeah. Just to clarify. So a mutual fund is picking individual stocks and bundling them up and yep. then presenting it Perfect. to individuals. Okay. 
just want yeah, to like here's a large cap mutual fund. Here's yeah. a domestic equity mutual fund. Here's, you know, and then you got these guys that are per, putting their personal twist on what they think is going to happen. And, and then you're paying them a fee for that. Yep. And so a lot of times you'd have funds that like, again, you're picking the right trend. I want to be in a tech fund. Well, you got a guy that has the wrong thesis <laughs> and you might underperform the whole index. Yeah. And so really what the data has suggested is we need to reduce fees and we need to reduce the fees. And over the long term, the majority of these mutual fund managers can't beat the index. And yep. so then to do research on top of not only the trends or maybe the stocks to be in, well, now you got to do research on the guy trying to pick the stocks. Well, that's exhausting. Leave? Did he leave or not? Yeah. <laughs> and as advisors, it was exhausting. <laughs> like, well, what's going on now? You know? Yeah. And so it was just a whole nother layer of research that you needed to do that would really, as we found out in the data, it's just not necessary. And so mm -hmm. in that, uh, you know, analysis of the data, we have uh, ETFs, exchange traded funds. And it's kind of like a cheaper, uh, less emotional, uh, less subjective way to diversify or pick a trend or a sector. Now they have them for everything. Yep. And um, just mirror an index and strip out all that cost of somebody trying to put their own flavor on semiconductors. Or why am I picking this one over that one? We'll just buy all of them in the index and just get out of their own way. So our third-party money manager leverages uh, their investment platform, majority, mainly through ETFs. They do do some individual stocks and bond portfolios, and they do do a few mutual fund strategies if, if you've held them for a super long time and, and there's unique situations. But predominantly, they're using exchange-traded funds, um, very low cost, like the lowest cost you can get. And they're trying to just strip out all of that cost, all of that uh, subjectivity, and they're doing the research and saying, hey, I think we should be long Japan. Let's just be in the Japan, you know, cheapest index. Or we like uh, semiconductors. Let's be in the semiconductor index. And so, um, yeah, and that's kind of the difference between Instead them of having individual risk of that individual company. Right. Yeah. Or, yep. you know, and especially like in Enron's case, and you've got fraud. I mean, and so uh, we'll see um, how it plays out. But uh, I think there's several stocks uh, in the marketplace right now that are on an Enron type path. And um, I can't wait to see it play out because it's still, it's still prevalent. Totally. All right. So let's talk about technical versus fundamental analysis. What does yeah, that so mean? This kind, of, this kind of dovetails on the previous one. Yep. I was taught and kind of grew up with the fundamental analysis and there's kind of two schools of thought on that. So I'll break that down really quick. Uh, it's called top down or bottom up. So top down is saying, okay, we got Donald Trump. Uh, whatever you, let's just say you're pro-Trump. Um, we got Trump. We got all these uh, these Democrats out of there. And I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to frame an investment case. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Um, we've got that. We're going to get lower taxes. We've been through 17 years of sideways, you know, huge blow-ups in the market. Everything's been worked out. America's ready to get back to work. I think the stock market's going to go up because of the macro economic things that are happening. We have low interest rates. The government's printed a ton of money. I think stocks are going to go way up. So that's the top macro. Then you go down from there. And that's where I'm saying, okay, I'm looking at trends. I think uh, semiconductors are going to be huge because they're putting a chip in everything. Mm. So then that's kind of the middle layer, right? The industry or the subsector of the overall economy. Then I'm going to say, okay, I think NVIDIA is going to just 
go nuts because they're in gaming. They make chips for gaming uh, units. Uh, they make the chips for artificial intelligence. They make the chips for uh, driverless automation in cars. And they make the chips for cryptocurrency miners. I, they're clicking on all cylinders. I really like their CEO. Boom, I'm going to buy that stock. That's top down. Bottom up is the exact opposite. Uh, I like NVIDIA. I like their CEO. He's a stud. The stock's going to go crazy. Yep, the industry should go crazy because they're putting a chip in everything. And um, that looks good. And then macro, yep, we got Trump. We got low taxes. We got low interest rates. And so that's the reverse. So that's fundamental analysis at a very high level. And then you're getting into like PE ratio. You know, how much do they, how much cash do they generate? Kind of the Warren Buffett, right? Like, mm -hmm. I think this is a good company. They have good management. They have really good numbers. They're undervalued. You know, they're just fundamentally a sound company inside and out. Mm -hmm. Technical analysis is saying, man, the heck with all of that. That's exhausting. People are people and have been for 10,000 years and the decisions we make are inherently the same. And we repeat the mistakes that we make and we repeat our emotions because we're emotional creatures. And so a stock chart is just an expression of human behavior and emotion. And over the long term, those charts are going to perform and behave similar, similarly through different trends. And by analyzing the chart, I can over predict or with a high probability determine what I think is going to happen with a stock regardless of who the CEO is, how much money they make or whatever. I'm going to try to interpret the future of the stock price based on the technical analysis of its chart, the volume of the people buying the stock and those different, um, those different indicators that have been created to track that stuff. Good. So that's kind of the, the technical versus the fundamental analysis. I think that's good to go into just cause it gives you another framework to work through. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's and then, can I add one thing? I, th I think you can. Yeah. I'm going to let you. Okay, cool. So, so I grew up as a fundamental analysis guy. And then when in 07, 08, I got really into, um, yeah, Ron Paul. And I got really into the fact that I thought we were going to have an economic crash, uh, based on the economic training that I got in college. And so that's really when I felt like most people just didn't see it coming, but I did luckily. And, um, was able to make some changes to really, you know, prevent that from being worse than it could have been uh, for our family. But um, in that, you know, getting back into the market when you see that type of crash was difficult. Yeah. And that's really why we've approached the YouTube channel the way we have and looking more at technical indicators and technical data of the market to have both. So yep. I think we have a great view of the macro, balance. but we were missing that technical balance. And so that's the purpose of the YouTube channel is to kind of blend the macro with the technical and really see where we at and what is the data showing us? Because sometimes the headlines in the short term can be very polarizing and fearful. And mm -hmm. uh, we saw that with the election and we, and we continue to see that in the media and I think that will get worse. And so the technical helps us drown out some of that stuff. Totally. That's very uncommon, Brian, that you do that. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay. So let's, there's a lot of, I think, questions between savings versus investing versus speculating, at least with our clients when we yeah. first meet them and first like talk to them. So what's the difference well, between savings? Do you save it? Do you invest it? Do you 
Is it a sure. speculative investment? Is it so? Let's walk through that a little bit for the listeners. Yeah. So I think this is a huge topic too that could probably just devote its own show to. But I think savings is kind of lost in the sense because of the low interest rates. Mm. You know, and we have farming clients and we have we have older clients and they talk about 50 years of leaving money in the bank and that money on average was earning 5 to 6% every year. Gosh, and that could added you imagine? Up. Could you imagine? I can imagine. Like it would be amazing. I actually remember uh, my brokerage account at my mom's firm in 1999 when I started working there. I was like 17 in my money market on my brokerage account was paying five and a half percent. Unbelievable. I mean, think about that. Like liquid Jeez. cash paying five and a half percent. But anyways, I think savings in the term of like, you know, what we, uh, you know, think about it as is leaving money at the bank uh, and earning a rate of interest. And mm-hmm. that's actually the first layer of residual income as part of our seven sources is getting income on the money you're just saving, like your emergency fund, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it's become kind of a lost start, although we do have a lot of clients that leave a lot of money in the bank. And that's why um, they're coming to us saying, man, I just, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, how long is this going to go on? And, and we have had some interest rates go up. And I think you'll see interest rates go up again here. Uh, the new Fed chairman uh, reports, I think, next month. And I think you'll see interest rates go up a little bit. But um, yeah, I think that that's that lost art. And it's pushed a lot of money into the market. And so then let's move into that investing, right? So investing is, I don't need this money for at least, um, you know, I think the book answer is five years. I would say probably three to five years. Mm-hmm. I don't need this money for three to five years. I got money in the bank or I've got money in a cash value life insurance policy that's stable. Uh, I want to take more risk mm-hmm. and um, I want to do something more aggressive. Perfect. That's investing. I'm going to put money in. I'm not going to touch it. I understand it can go up and down and I'm going to invest for the long term. That's mm-hmm. investing. I'm committed to this. Speculating, I think, is the other one that most people, I think it's kind of like in the vein of savings because I think savings is a lost start. And I think a lot of people that are speculating think they're investing, but they're actually speculating. <laughs> and speculating in something is really more of a short-term focus. You're in, you're out. You really don't understand what you're doing. And um, it's interesting too, with like a lot of our you know, a lot of our uh, interviews, Philip, I feel like a lot of people were speculating when they first got started, but they were speculating more with like rental properties or like trying to start a business or like I'm passionate about something, but I don't know how to like put train tracks on this thing. That's a good point. But speculating in regards to the markets or, and I would even, you know, lump in cryptocurrency with this because I do think cryptocurrency falls in this bucket if you're going to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, but speculating is basically trying to buy and sell more frequently things that you truly don't understand. Mm-hmm. And you don't really have a system to derive profits from it over time. You're really just guessing, trading on momentum, trading on emotion, trading on headlines. Mm-hmm. And there's real no rhyme or reason behind what you're doing other than you have money sitting there that you feel like you got to do something with. Yeah. And it's funny because would you, would you mentioned our other people that we've talked to and our clients, it does seem like they are speculating a little bit, but they're speculating on something that they're passionate about normally. Right. Or right. They're, they're, they're speculating on something that they're going to learn something from, whether mm-hmm. or not they're passionate or not. And that's why it's scary when you put money in something that you don't understand and you have right. no control of what you do you do or you don't know yeah. in this bucket in this kind of investing type of uh, talking about this kind of money, man, when it goes down, what did you really learn? Nothing. Yeah. But like, if I have the, 
Go ahead. Can I just share a story real yeah. quick on this? Yeah. So I had this conversation last night with a guy and uh, he initially got into an oil and gas deal. Yep. Just put in a small amount of money. I know. I know where this really is well. I know where this is It went going. really well. <laughs> and he's like, man, this is cool. Uh, yeah. I got a tax deduction, huge up front. I'm getting paid. They're sending me a check every month. Oil's going up. Uh, I'm going to put in more money. The ultimate and that awesome. investment goes well. And he's like, man, I got a tax deduction. Oil's going up. It's at an all-time high. I'm getting paid every month. Run. I'm going to put a ton of money in. Run. A ton of money in. <laughs> Boom. Did get the tax deduction. That was the only benefit. Oil plummets. Uh, no cash flow. The mm. money's gone. The company went out of business. And so in that, that speculating, he didn't really know anything about oil and gas. And, and I'm not putting that on that person because we've totally. all done it. I've yes. done it. For sure. We've all been in that. And I think that leads credit lends credibility to the technical analysis, by the way. But the, isn't that the story we all have on some level when it yes. comes to investing? Like, oh, that felt good. Oh, that felt good. I'm going to put in a little more. Yeah. Oh, and that felt great. And then where did it all go? Whammy. Yeah. So, you know, so that's, that's funny how you walk through that savings versus investing versus speculating, because it does seem like it goes in that order to me, like that's normal. That's yeah. a normal order. And it's your saving. And especially nowadays, you just don't feel like you're getting any interest rate at all. So then you're like, right. well, I better invest. And then you're yeah. like, huh, okay. And then you're like, yeah. let's go for it. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. <laughs> yes. Oh man. Okay. So like nothing can go wrong. <laughs> yeah. What are, what are we doing here? So you, you mentioned a little bit about crypto and about speculating. Is there anything else? You love crypto. I just want to give you a little platform. If you want to talk about it, you can go ahead, buddy. I do. I do love crypto. It's probably like if Wall Street and Vegas had a baby, that's <laughs> what cryptocurrency yes. is. That's a great to me. Analogy. I think that's like the perfect analogy. Gosh, um, great. I do think it's the future in terms of technology, the blockchain. I think you're going to just see massive amounts of innovation. Sure. Uh, I think when you actually think about the blockchain and cryptocurrency in relation to money, um, again, the government's trying to paint it as investment. We're talking about it as investment here because that's kind of the way everybody's viewing it. But as money, it's actually a more accountable and a more, um, I think, long-term sustainable solution for money versus our current central banking system. That's why I'm excited about it uh, because I think the current system gives an unfair advantage to the people that get the money first, aka the banks and aka Wall Street, and aka the politicians who are paid by the bankers. And uh, I'm a little bitter and jaded in that. But um, I do think cryptocurrency is the future. I think blockchain is going to blow people's minds what we're going to be able to do in 20 years. Uh, just like now, everybody couldn't imagine their life without their cell phone, and we're addicted to it, truthfully. Um, and I think the blockchain is that and cryptocurrency will be that. But um, yeah, I think a lot of people are speculating right now, just as they did in the dot-com era. But I do think there's a lot of money to be made if you are patient and you have a strategy and you don't overinvest based on where you're at mm -hmm. and uh, you do the research. And that's uh, kind of the way I'm approaching it personally. And um, I, I've enjoyed being able to talk about it with our clients and and I think make that analogy back to like, hey, remember that big, huge first computer you got? You didn't really know what it did. And you didn't know if like, why am I buying this? <laughs> uh, but you bought it. And um, we all have that dead hardware in our basements that probably needs to be taken to a landfill. <laughs> and, um, you know, we've spent tens of thousands of dollars on having access to the internet. And I think 
that's been a progression, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think dipping that toe in the water with a thousand dollars or something, you know, very small relative to your overall holdings, um, is kind of like buying that first computer. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's kind of how we're approaching it. But yeah, so you know, this is there's a lot of topics here that we could keep going going into. I think at this point, I would just say if you have any questions at all, reach out to us. We can walk through those. Lastly, I just want to point out to we are more advocates for our younger clients to start a non-qualified, we call it an engine account that would kick off income kind of like a rental property um, and, and get it back into the flow of your cash flow to try to help you solve for tomorrow instead of solve for the right. last day of your life. And that's what more of a qualified account would do. So Brian, thanks for walking through that with everybody. I thought I hope you guys thought it was a little bit more fun and enjoyable. Trust me, it could have got a lot worse. So I just no, thank you everyone. Cool. Yeah, I appreciate everyone for listening. Um, any questions you guys have, we would love to uh, answer those for you. If you would do us a, a huge favor, and I mean this, uh, subscribe to this show. Uh, give us a yeah. Just rate us, um, and that yeah. sounds super lame and maybe I don't know selfish, but that no, really it, helps us. Go ahead. Yeah. It helps us with our ranking on iTunes and Stitcher and Google and, um, you know, getting more eyeballs on the podcast and more ears, if you will. And I think just, uh, a plug too, like if you do want to understand more about technical analysis, our YouTube, uh, Uncommon yeah. Wealth Partners YouTube, uh, channel, we're trying to dive into that more and explain, uh, more of what the data is suggesting the market is saying. And, um, you know, we've helped several people who are like, man, I really want to start understanding trading. I really want to start understanding options. I hear all this stuff about it. And I think it is a viable path uh, out of maybe your day job. Mm -hmm. And um, we know several people that trade their own money and wealth Mm -hmm. uh, as their day job. And they have, you know, retired from corporate America in that. And um, I think that's something that we can help people put a path on. You ultimately got to do the work and make the trades and and do the research, but, um, it is a viable path. And I think it's going to be more of a viable path with, and because of cryptocurrency and the expansion of that market. And, um, I think if, if you are having those types of feelings, um, please reach out to us because, because there is an avenue for that. And Brian's done a great job and being very religious on doing the two weeks, every two weeks he puts out that, that YouTube. So we really <laughs> appreciate that. So, um, yeah. again, Thank guys, you. you guys have been watching and friends, I should say, I say guys a lot. I should yeah. just, Throw that we got to stop saying guys because there's know. a lot of women listening. There is. There so is. So shout friends. out to all the wonderful women Woo-hoo. out there listening to the podcast. Uh, friends, thank you. Friends. You listen to the Uncommon Life Project. Uh, this is Philip and your host, Brian Dewhurst, don't you know? And thank guys, we'd love to thanks for listening. keep listening and uh, keep tuning in. Have a great day. Thanks, everybody. That's all for this episode of the Uncommon Life Project. Brought to you by Uncommon Wealth Partners. Be sure to visit UncommonWealth.com to learn more about our services. Don't miss an episode as we introduce you to inspiring people who are actively pursuing an uncommon life. 